The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. And Father, now as we open up your word and we have read it, as we take the time to examine it this morning, I pray that your word would examine us. God, that our hearts would be open to you, that you would search us, that you would reveal anything in us that we need to be aware of and to turn away from that this morning our hearts would be on fire with a zeal and a passion for seeking after you because you are the God of life and your word is the word of life. So work and move, have your way among us here in this place this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. So most here are probably aware of the Nobel Peace Prize. Each year, there's an individual or an organization that's awarded the Nobel Peace Prize And they're awarded this by the Norwegian Nobel Committee. This was according to a man named Alfred Nobel, who committed a large sum of money to this annual award and some others in his will before his death. In his own words, he says that this prize is to be awarded to the individual or organization that, quote, shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. And so if that's you, you could be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. What's ironic, however, is that Alfred Nobel made his fortune as an explosives developer and an arms dealer. He's the inventor of dynamite, along with other explosives, and many of which were used primarily in war. But in 1888, his brother Ludwig while visiting France, died, and a French newspaper mistakenly published Alfred's obituary. The heading of the obituary said, The Merchant of Death is Dead. How would you like that to be the title of your obituary? It went on to say, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. It's believed that this premature reading of his 
own obituary is what led him to bequeath so much of his fortune so that he wouldn't be remembered as the merchant of death, but hopefully as a man of peace. The passage that we're looking at this morning reads something like an obituary. We might even say it's something like Alfred Nobel's premature obituary by that French newspaper. It begins and it ends with a lamentation. We see that in verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. And in verses 16 and 17, we see this again. There will be wailing. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. In all the vineyards, there shall be wailing. Now, a a lamentation, it's like a death song. It's like a funeral dirge. Think about bagpipes and minor keys. That's a lamentation. But God is speaking this word through the prophet Amos to the people of Israel so that like it was for Alfred Nobel, they they would read this and they would see the destruction that they have caused in their nation, in their own lives, and that they would turn and change. Repent. Repent. It's not too late for Israel. They can change things. They can repent. They can receive the grace of God. They can seek the Lord and experience life. We see that several times in this passage this morning. Seek the Lord instead of continuing as they were living in death is what they were living with only fuller and darker death to come. Now, that's a bit of where we're going, but I need to take a moment to tell you how we're going to get there this morning also, because we're going to take a little different approach to these 17 verses of Amos chapter 5. Picture with me, standing on a lake shore, there's no wind, the, the lake is nice and calm, and you take a rock and you throw it out onto the water. Not skipping this rock. No, you're just launching it out so that it comes straight down. And that initial splash, and then what happens? From that point where the rock enters the water, you begin seeing ripples working their way out from that central point. Do you picture that in your mind? Well, that's a little bit like this passage before us this morning. If we were to to launch a rock into the center of this passage, it would land right there at verses 8 and 9. And verses 8 and 9 then, on both sides of it, work out in harmony, work out in unison on both sides of verses 8 and 9 in these concentric circles. At the heart of the passage, verses 8 and 9, God is described as mighty, as powerful, even as merciful. And as we work out from that central place, we are getting closer and closer to understanding how it is that Israel was dying. 
They have a mighty and a a merciful God. And that's what we see in verses eight and nine. But you go out one ring. If you look on both sides of verses eight and nine, if you look at verse seven on the one side and you look at verses 10 through 13 on the other side, you see that the people of Israel are a stubborn and a rebellious people. You go out even one step further, one ripple further in verses four through six on the one side, in verses 14 through 15 on the other side, you see that they are a people that are called to seek the Lord. And then finally, you go back all the way, verses one through three and verses 16 and 17 because of their rebellion, because of their refusal to turn, to repent, there is a summons to weep and to wail. It's a song of lamentation. So let's start right in the middle. Verses eight and nine, we see this mighty and this merciful God. Verse eight, he, God, who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the Lord or on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amos is describing a God who is mighty, a God who is also merciful in his work. That we can stand in awe of what God has created. That we can look, even as Amos makes mention of these two constellations, and we can see the majesty of God, even as we look up into the night sky. And we can marvel at the power and the might of God. These two same constellations are mentioned by Job in a couple places, but most notably in Job chapter 38. And I think it's worth looking at. In Job chapter 38, this is where God confronts Job and begins speaking with him. In verse one, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Those are not words that you necessarily want to hear the Lord speaking to you. Dress for action like a man. Here it comes. And as God is speaking to Job, He says in verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? 
Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? As God confronts Job, Job responds in chapter 40. He answers the Lord, verse 3 and verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job comes to this understanding of how mighty God is, of how high and holy God is, of how powerful he is, of all that he has done, his, his works and creation, his placement of the stars. And in this, Job is humbled. And I think that too is what Amos is speaking to the people of Israel. Know your God. Know the God that has called you. Know the God that you serve. And if you look at that, if you rightly understand that, if you have a right view of that, your response will be humility. God is also the one that designed the the cycle of water and created water so uniquely, moving between solid and liquid and gas states. He calls for the waters of the sea. He pours them out on the surface of the earth. It carries to the top of the mountains. It waters the surface of the earth. And and this is one display of God's merciful provision for mankind. But for the people of Israel, the emphasis isn't so much on God's merciful provision. No, what is used for mercy can also be used for destruction, that the waters flash forth against the strong and destroy mighty fortresses. Verse 9. The people of Israel were caught up in worshiping all sorts of gods that had no power. You understand that, right? They were worshiping the the pagan gods, the false gods, the idols, the Baals, the Ashtaroths. They had made golden calves to worship in Bethel and in Dan. And these were the objects of their worship. And they were dumb. They were mute. They were powerless, these gods that they worshiped. But the true God, he is a God unlike the false gods that they were worshiping. And worship of anything other than the one true God is folly. You can write this down and and read it later. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 20, where these workers, they they take and they fashion their own gods. They cut down a tree and they, they burn half of it so they can cook their food and the other half of it then they carve into an image that they're then going to bow down and worship and as Isaiah lays this out you read this and you think how 
ridiculous. What nonsense to worship something like that. But anytime we give ourselves to the worship of something other than the one true and living God, we're guilty of the same. It may not be a statue that we've carved out of a tree. Could be something we hang on a wall in our home. Could be something that we park in our garage. It could be our garage. It could be an idea. It could be something that we are, are so devoted to that it takes the place of God in our lives. And we become false worshipers. We are always worshiping. We never stop. The question is, what is it? At any given time, at any moment, what is it that you are giving yourself to in the worship of? For the people of Israel, they got further and further and further away from the one true God, the mighty and the merciful God. And they found themselves caught up in all sorts of foolishness, all sorts of idolatry. And their idolatry then was played out in actions, in in deeds. And so now we move out to this first ripple beyond this central point And that is the stubborn and the rebellious people on both sides of verses eight and nine. So we're going to look at verse seven, along with verses 10 through 13. If you look at those together, you see that they're communicating the same idea that the people of Israel have done wrong, are a stubborn and a rebellious people. Verse seven, you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. The people of Israel no longer were worshiping the one true God. They had went off to worship idols, and so their actions and their deeds reflected that departure. They became like those things that they worshiped, and that's always the case. Our theology is intensely practical. What we believe about God and how we devote ourselves to God or don't devote ourselves to God is going to be lived out in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. And the people of Israel, they had left the worship of the one true God, the God of justice and the God of righteousness. So no surprise, verse seven, they've turned justice to wormwood and they cast down righteousness to the earth. What should have been sweet justice, justice rightly executed and upheld should be a sweet thing But as they worshiped gods that would satisfy their own carnal desires, that would meet their temporal needs, their actions and deeds then were all concerned about their own self, self gratification. And so, justice, they've turned it to wormwood, bitter, 
poisonous even. It was no justice at all. Justice should be cause of rejoicing. When a ruler rules in justice, the people will thrive. There will be celebration. There will be life. But not here in Israel. It was bitter. What they did was poisonous. And they had cast down righteousness to the earth. That means they had thrown it aside. They've cast it to the earth where they just walk all over it. Standard of righteousness? We don't, we don't have a standard anymore. No, we took that down. We just threw it aside. We walk all over it. There's no longer a standard of righteousness. A few weeks ago, when as a family, we were on a backpacking trip and we went down from, from camp one late afternoon and as Joel and Natalie and I were getting close to the place where we were going to fill water bottles, Joel out in front found a can of bear spray in the middle of the trail. And he picked it up and got a can of bear spray. And we had just passed another man on the trail not long before. And this can of bear spray was right in the middle of the trail. So I thought that it's unlikely that he would have walked over it without picking it up, maybe putting it up in plain sight if he didn't know who it belonged to. It's likely that it it belongs to him. And so I took this can of bear spray and I turned around. I began calling to this man and holding up the can of bear spray. And he turns around and begins walking as I'm walking to approach him. And I give him the can of bear spray, which belonged, belonged to him. And his response was, thanks. You could have had a free can of bear spray. That's how I got it. I stole it from my sister. And as he said that, I thought, how sad. That's the standard of, of righteousness. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. If I need something, I, I take it. I don't acquire it by, by a righteous means. No, I've taken righteousness and I've just cast it down to the earth. I'm going to take what I, what I need. If I find something, I'm just going to assume that now it belongs to me. Make no effort to get it back to the rightful owner. Things of that nature were prevalent in Israel. And you might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But little compromises turn into bigger compromises, turn into larger things. These are important that that we pay attention to these things. This is justice. This is righteousness. We need to look at this in all areas of life. Even so, the people of Israel in verses 10 through 13 also, they show their stubbornness and they show their rebellion. When the people of Israel would gather there in the city gate where the elders would would sit, decisions would be made. 
Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. If someone came to that session, someone came to that meeting and began speaking truth, didn't just go along with the status quo, they would hate him, hate that person who reproves, offer some kind of a word of of correction or difference. Someone comes in and, and speaks the truth. How dare you? They would abhor such a one. And because of this, verse 11, they would trample on the poor, exact taxes of grain from him. Looking down further in verse 12, they would afflict the righteous. You who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe, You who turn aside the needy in the gate. It was all about what they could do to to fatten their own pockets. It was all about what they could do to add and increase their own comfort. Rather than care for the poor, rather than help the poor, they would oppress them. They would take advantage of them. In their weak state, well, this person has no influence, so I can do whatever I like. I can draw as much out of this person as possible because what are they going to do? They've profited through mistreatment of others. God says, you've built great houses, but you're not going to live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you're not going to, drink of their fruit. God sees, God knows. And ultimately they would not get away with their actions, though they would try. In the midst of their rebellion, as God sees all of this taking place, God knows what they're doing. God knows their mistreatment of the poor instead of coming to the side of, coming to the help and the aid of those God sees this and he calls them to turn. And that's what we see now as we move one step out further in verses four through six and verses 14 through 15. This summons to seek the Lord. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. Now these three places, those were places of their false worship. Gilgal shall surely go into exile. Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Do you see how merciful God is? He wasn't trying to draft them onto his team because they were exceptional, because they were great, because they were devoted. No, they were stubborn and and rebellious, but God still is calling them back to him. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. He invites them back. Seek me. 
When was the last time you played a game of hide-and-seek with someone that was three years old or younger? Those are fun games, aren't they? The way that hide-and-seek typically works at that age, when it's your time to go to your hiding spot, they escort you there and tell you, you hide here. And so you hide, and they go off to count. One, two... Three, ten, ready or not, here I come. And and they run over to where they had placed you. They found you. Or, Or on the other side, when it's their turn to hide, as soon as you count to ten, as soon as you announce, ready or not, here I come, what do they do? They jump out. Here I am. There's not much seeking. It's not a tough game. Well, church, I want you to understand that seeking the Lord isn't a great mystery. Sometimes we get so lofty or we get so lost. Seek the Lord and we we think it's something complicated. And the Lord says, here I am. I'm right here. I've laid it out plainly for you. It's not like you have to find him with great difficulty. He tells us, turn away from evil. Repent of sin. Read his word and obey it. That is what it is to seek the Lord. I want to ask if we took away Sunday mornings from your week and our gatherings together, what would an obituary of your faith read like? Would there be health and wellness? Would there be talk of seeking the Lord after his kingdom And his righteousness? Or would that obituary be devoid of words of seeking after the Lord, instead occupied with self and with prosperity? Now, don't get me wrong. Sunday mornings are a joyous time together. They're important for us, so important for us to to gather together as a church in worship of God, to be under the teaching together of God's word, to be in prayer together. But if that's the sum total of your seeking after the Lord, let me tell you, for your own life, for your own health, for your own goodness, you need to do more. You need to do more. A seeking after the Lord brings life. The Lord says this again and again here in verse 4, seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. 
That's what life is. That's where life is found is in seeking after the Lord in spending time with him, to spend time reading his word, to spend time in prayer, to be confessing sin, to be turning away from it, to be pursuing him. God gives the promise through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And God is interested in your heart, not just a ritual, not just outward shows of religion. Seek good and not evil that you may live. He even says later in verse 15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Psalm 97, we're given the exhortation, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Exclamation mark. Romans 12, 9, Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. When is the last time you were abhorred? When you were sickened at the sight or the news of something? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Isaiah says, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Church, I want you to understand that. God who sees all and knows all isn't going to be shocked when you come to him in confession and repentance. There's not a season required of cleaning yourself up, of trying to do something right and good, and then I'll be presentable to the Lord. No, you're only making it worse. Your righteousness is like a filthy rag. No, come to the Lord now. Seek him while he may be found. Call him while he is near. The wicked The wicked can do this. Let the wicked forsake his way and turn to the Lord. The unrighteous man, let him turn from his unrighteous thoughts and seek the Lord. Because the Lord will have compassion on him. The Lord will abundantly pardon. That's the message even that that we see God is calling his people to seek him. Even in this obituary, even in this lamentation, in this funeral song, there's still, it's not too late. It's not too late. Seek the Lord and live. You don't have to walk down the road of death. Seek the Lord and live. In verse 15, it may be, that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Our God is a gracious God, a merciful God. 
And if you come to him, even with the, the most vile of sins, and you come in humility, and you come in confession, and you come with a repentant heart, the Lord welcomes you. He will have compassion on you, Isaiah says. He will abundantly pardon you. This is the good news, church. This is the good news for us, that we can come to him. Remember this, that the Amos, Amos isn't written to the world. Amos isn't written to those outside. No, Amos went and he preached to the people of Israel, the people who thought we're all right. We're part of God's people. This is a message for the church. The more time I spend in Amos, the more I think this is a message. Yes, first and foremost to the, to the people of Israel. But now I see so much application for the American church. This is a message for us to not be complacent, to not be blind to our own sins, to not be ignorant of ways that we have refused justice or forsaken justice, of ways that we've taken that standard of righteousness and just cast it away. Instead saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what's most convenient. I'm going to do what's most pragmatic. I'm going to do what, what makes me feel good right now. And if we don't turn, if we don't seek the Lord, even as Israel was not seeking the Lord, there's cause for weeping. There's cause for sadness. And that's what we see here at the far ends of our passage this morning, verses one through three and verses 16 and 17, a word of lamentation. For Amos, this wasn't something he came in skipping into town. Hey, listen to what I've got to tell you. For Amos, this broke his heart. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation. He didn't bring this with delight or with joy, but with sorrow. In the squares of the city, verse 16, there will be wailing. In the streets, they shall say, alas, alas, the farmers are called to mourning. And those who are skilled in lamentation are called to wailing. In all the vineyards, the places that prior were places of such prosperity and fruitfulness, there will be wailing. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Because Israel has turned away from the Lord, the Lord is going to allow Israel to reap what has been sown. There, there's a false security. They're still sending out troops to battle, verse 3. City that went out a thousand. The city that sent out a hundred. Just one-tenth of those are going to return. They're being met with great defeat. 
Israel might in many ways still look like they're a nation alive, a a people under God, big and and well-appointed houses we read about, vineyards producing fruit, wines, oils, fragrances, all of these luxuries that the people of Israel had, but no, they're dead. They're dead. Amos is there singing their funeral song. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So Israel had the reputation of being alive. They, they looked alive. They had all of these wonderful things, prosperity, But God who sees the heart, he knows that they are dead. The book of Amos is a difficult book to preach. Because I don't want it to seem like we're here every week just beating up on you. Fire and brimstone and repent, sackcloth and ashes. Why are you still smiling? I don't want it to be that way. But I also don't want to change the message of Amos, who calls us to take a serious look at our lives, to examine closely, to see if there's sin that needs to be dealt with. Even as Seth was praying this morning, search my heart, O God, and know me. Reveal if there's any wicked way in me. Is there anything, Lord? And as we work through Amos, there's this opening up, this exposing. Israel didn't weep over their sin. So there would be wailing. There would be mourning. There would be lamentation over the judgment of their sin and the consequences of it. Do you see this in verse 17? I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Now don't read that and think, I'm going to put that on a coffee cup. What a blessing. God is going to pass through our midst. There's another nation that God passed through their midst. We read about it in Exodus chapter 12. Verse 12 says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. As long as Israel continued in rebellion and idolatry, this is what they could anticipate. God would pass through their midst. He passed through Egypt And remember, he struck the firstborn of every household dead. 
Because of hardness of heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh didn't lead his people in repentance, in a turning, in a changing, in an acknowledgement of the one true God and a worship of him. As the Lord is calling Israel to seek him, I want to remind us again of this golden thread of grace that we see in Amos. Everywhere we look, we see this thread of grace. Here we see it in verse 15. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It's not too late. All hope is not lost. Amos ends ultimately on this note, the book of Amos that God would hold a remnant, that he would restore, that he would fulfill his promise. If the Lord who knows all and the Lord who sees all were to write your obituary, would it tell of a life of seeking him? And understand, I'm not saying a perfect life because that's impossible. We cannot do that. But what I mean by a life of seeking him is a life that regards God as holy, a life that takes sin seriously, a life that repents of it when when we're convicted, when our conscience is pricked, and a life that is to the greatest extent possible by the power of the spirit pursuing righteousness and justice. Church, this is life. This is true life to seek after the Lord. That's how we find life is in pursuit of the Lord. Eternal life, which is now here present and only to increase in the day when we are in glory together with him. Would you pray with me? Father, even as we pause, as we consider the message of Amos, as we consider the people of Israel, as James says, we are like those who look in a mirror, but I pray that we would not walk away and forget what we have seen, forget what type of people we are, that we are prone to the same temptations. Yes, the times are, are different than they were at the time that Amos wrote this message when he preached these words to Israel. But God, the temptations, the sins are the same. So I pray that as we look into your word, that we would see ourselves reflected in it, that we would recognize, Lord, where we have pursued things other than you, where we have not upheld justice, where we have not upheld righteousness, where we have mistreated others, where we have failed to come to the side of those who are in need of help, 
and that we would repent. We thank you for Jesus who came and lived a perfect life. We cannot live that life. But Jesus came and lived it for us. He offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we might be washed clean, that we might be declared righteous. Thank you that we have this guarantee that we can come to you in full confidence that we can come to you in humility, that we can come to you boldly and receive grace to help in time of need, that we can confess to you our sins and know that Jesus has taken them away, that you will grant to us your spirit, that you will empower us by your spirit to live lives that are worthy of the gospel by which we have been called, that we might live, that we might speak, that we might think to your glory, not to ourselves, not to any false worship or false gods or idols, but that we would live to your glory. Father, continue to, to work among us and in us through the preaching of, of Amos, through his message to Israel. Lord, help it to land on soft hearts here today. Change us and mold us and shape us and make us more like you. Loving righteousness, doing justice. Glorify your name, I pray, through your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.